for his valor in Vietnam. Dean Harold Myers was awarded a Purple Heart and the Army's Commendation Medal for Heroism. In March 1970, while on patrol in an area south of Saigon, the 20-year-old infantryman was shot in the upper left arm by a sniper. Myers ran for cover. He jumped into some underbrush and lay there bleeding. When his fellow soldiers found him, Myers was in shock. Blood had drained from his face. He was airlifted out of that jungle and survived. Thirty-two and a half years later, at the age of 53, at a gas station 40 miles from his home, Myers would be shot again. The story is unfolding as we speak. The picture's now coming in from Manassas, Virginia, which is about 30 miles southwest of the district, courtesy of Washington Station WTTG. There was a shooting here a short time ago. One witness reported hearing a single shot as a man was pumping gas. It was soon confirmed. Myers was DC sniper victim number nine. The Commonwealth of Virginia would be where the snipers would hang around for a while, picking off more victims after the Myers slaying. Meanwhile, a newly formed task force that was created to catch the snipers was nowhere close to catching them or identifying them. The public was coming unglued. I don't get the feeling that they're going to find him anywhere. I'm more self-conscious about lingering in parking lots, just spending time out in the public. It's a little scary. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like I need to get on, you know, carry on with everything. Presented by Law & Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, The Hunt for the DC Snipers. Across Washington, D.C., panic was setting in. Following the shootings of Caroline Sewell and Iron Brown, the latter coming on October 7th, the sniper spree was no longer contained in Montgomery County. After-school sporting events across the D.C. region were canceled. More tarps went up around more gas stations. Retailers hired armed guards. Outdoor seating at restaurants was closed. By this point, the FBI and other federal agencies were fully involved in the investigation. It was reported that Montgomery County Police Chief Charles Moose personally requested more federal assistance from the Justice Department. That led to some consternation among the chief, the Montgomery County State's Attorney's Office, and the U.S. Attorney's Office, which would lead to future disagreements over who would put the defendants on trial first. But in spite of that initial agitation, everyone pledged to work together. The reality was that nobody had time to think about one's professional opinion about the other, because there was another shooting, two days after the Bowie shooting. It was nightfall on October 9th, when Dean Myers was shot in the head outside a Sunoco station in Manassas, Virginia. Myers was a civil engineer who designed storm drainage systems for residential neighborhoods. He worked late on October 9th, but that wasn't unusual for him. Myers was a lifelong bachelor and lived in a townhouse in Gaithersburg, Maryland. 
He usually had a lot of work to do, and he preferred to avoid the worst of the rush hour D.C. traffic, so he'd often work late. Meyer's injuries in Vietnam were serious enough that hospital visits became a regular part of his adult life. His arm was significantly and permanently disabled. He had lost hope after returning home from the war, drifting into long periods of self-doubt and aimlessness. He'd found salvation through education. He would go on to attend Penn State, attain an engineering degree, and find work outside Washington, D.C. He owned property along the Rappahannock River, rode a motorcycle, and drove a Corvette. Myers escaped the psychological hole that his Vietnam trauma had over him. He was living a productive and enjoyable life. It was shortly after 8 p.m., on October 9th, when Myers decided to wrap up and head home. Before getting on the highway, he pulled his Mazda protege to a pump at the battlefield Sunoco on Sudley Road. It was just a block from his office. He was less than 1,000 feet from the on-ramp to Interstate 66, the highway that runs from the Shenandoah Valley to Washington, D.C. Since the start of the shooting spree, Myers made sure to do all of his errands closer to work, rather than close to home in Montgomery County. That sure seemed logical. Six sniper shootings were reported in Montgomery a week earlier. But on this night, the snipers were in Prince William County, Virginia. The bullet that struck Myers entered his skull near his left ear. It killed him instantly. Someone inside the gas station heard the shot he called 911. When a Prince William County police officer arrived at the Sunoco, he knew immediately that the victim was dead. 10-4, that's a confirmed. Got a subject down at the uh, Sunoco station. has been shot. Two detectives later discovered something near the Bob Evans parking lot across the street from the Sunoco. It was a map of Baltimore and Baltimore County, Maryland. It was collected as evidence and stored in a police locker, but not immediately examined for prints or DNA. The task force in Rockville wasn't told about it. It was an oversight that would haunt authorities later. The Prince William County Police Chief contacted Paul Ebert, the county's Commonwealth's attorney. Ebert had played football at Virginia Tech. An avid hunter, Ebert would host a Christmas party where he would serve bear and elk meat. While in office, Ebert was the most prolific prosecutor in the Commonwealth when it came to sending offenders to death row. He gained a reputation for that, one he embraced. One famous story about Ebert was that one of the defendants he attained a guilty verdict for had that conviction overturned on appeal. The man wrote a letter to Ebert taunting him and divulged more details about the case in that letter. Ebert promptly filed updated paperwork in an effort to charge the man again on new counts. That's exactly what happened. When one of Ebert's top deputies learned about the Myers shooting, he thought, if the D.C. sniper did this... He just made a fatal mistake. Ebert would give a similar message to the world the following day. On October 10th, during a media conference, Ebert said, quote, 
This case, if I have anything to do with it, will be prosecuted in this jurisdiction to the full extent of the law. End quote. Law enforcement had to catch the snipers first. Police in Virginia were dissatisfied with the traffic stops. The goal was to keep the snipers contained and prevent them from heading back to Maryland, where they were assumed to be living. Those stops generated nothing other than false alarms. Police and other first responders had to manage a lot of stress. Andrea Budin was a co-worker of mine at the Journal Newspapers. It was a chain of dailies with a coverage area across major suburbs of Washington, D.C., in both Maryland and Virginia. The Meyer shooting landed in Andrea's coverage area. When she spoke to police and medics at the scenes of that shooting and others, they openly admitted how frightened they were. The medics and such who were responding to the later shootings, they were already talking about, I feel like I'm in a war zone, I'm in a hot zone, I'm afraid, I'm trying to move these patients out of here because I don't know if we're going to get shot. Montgomery County Police Chief Charles Moose, now in charge of an ever-expanding sniper task force, addressed the media the morning after the Myers shooting. During that conference, he mentioned a new hotline and called out the number three times. For the FBI, it was an enormous task fielding all of those calls. On the previous day, a pair of special agents pulled tables together and hooked up computers and telephones to create a call center on the first floor of the FBI office, located near the U.S. Capitol. Time was too valuable for growing pains, but the task force still had to deal with them. The hotline was announced to the world hours before expected, so not all of the designated phones were ready. Callers were regularly put on hold. Some of them hung up before the call taker could reconnect, and the system kept crashing. The FBI agent in charge of the call center had to act fast. She ordered the computers removed and told call takers to jot down information by hand. She also expanded the call center to the third floor. In spite of all those efforts, it still wasn't enough. Tens of thousands of calls were coming in by the day. The FBI agent in charge determined that a single call taker could handle a maximum of 35 calls per hour. She thought she could rely just on FBI agents to man the phones, but eventually she recruited researchers and analysts to assist the team. It was utter chaos. The room was loud and hot. It was often hard to hear the tipster on the other end of the line. There weren't just calls coming from different time zones. There were international calls coming in. If a call taker got a promising lead, he or she would raise a hand and then pass the information to investigators who were standing by. The best of those tips were faxed or sent by courier to the task force in Rockville. Meanwhile, there were so many tips to wade through. Callers would identify ex-husbands, ex-boyfriends, and weird neighbors as possible sniper suspects. Occasionally, a mentally disturbed person would call to identify himself as the sniper. By this point in the investigation, many people were under surveillance, shady people. Federal and local authorities were watching them. They all seemed at least a little bit suspicious to somebody, 
and many of them had access to weapons and or white vans. While the call center was up and running, or sputtering, the police station in Rockville, where most of the investigators were working, was starting to get messier and more cramped. The smell of stale coffee was starting to overpower anyone who set foot inside. One high-ranking officer went to find some vacant office space and found some next door. The FBI stepped in to make sure covering the rent wasn't a problem. So the next door space turned into the Sniper Task Force's Joint Operations Center, or JOC. Satellite TV was hooked up inside the JOC, something the Fed said was a necessity inside the headquarters of what had already become the biggest act of criminal investigation in the world. The morning of Friday, October 11th, 53-year-old Kenneth Bridges, a Philadelphia businessman, pulled his silver Buick into an Exxon station near Massaponics, Virginia. It was a morning that John Burkett, a reporter for WTVR Channel 6, the CBS affiliate in Richmond, Virginia, can still recall in great detail. I remember the day like it was yesterday. It was a, a very, uh, it was almost a mist outside. It was, it was uh, cloudy and gray, misting, a little bit cold. Kenneth Bridges was on the phone with his wife when he pulled off I-95 at exit 126 to fill up his tank. Bridges was a successful entrepreneur and an advocate for black business owners. He was a father of six children. He had graduated from the Wharton School of Business at UPenn. He was the son of a World War II paratrooper. The gas station was near Four Mile Fork in Spotsylvania County, the same county where Caroline Sewell had been shot one week earlier. That shooting outside Fredericksburg was five miles from the station that Bridges had pulled into. His wife had warned him not to pull over for gas anywhere in that area. Bridges assured his wife that the area he was in was safe. While on the phone with her, Bridges told her that a Virginia state trooper was nearby. That trooper had responded to a crash about 50 yards from the Exxon station and he was directing traffic. It was 9.28 a.m. when Bridges got out of his car to put the fuel nozzle into his gas tank. Then came a bang. Bridges was shot in the back and fell beside the gas pumps. The trooper heard the shot. He saw Bridges on the ground and ran to him. He started CPR. Paramedics arrived minutes later. Bridges was taken to Mary Washington Hospital about three miles away, where he was pronounced dead. This was not a case in which the shooter got sloppy and didn't notice the trooper standing nearby. There was simply no way he couldn't have seen him. The trajectory of the bullet would have gone right past the trooper and hit Kenneth Bridges at the pump because it was determined they shot from the Denny's across the street. National newscasts, including this one, taken from a segment on NBC Nightly News, emphasized the boldness and recklessness of shooting someone in front of a trooper. Major Howard Smith, the lead spokesman of the Spotsylvania County Sheriff's Office, spoke about it specifically. Police say the brazenness of the shooting may have given them new leads about the sniper. With a uh, uniformed trooper directly across the street, obviously we're dealing with an individual that, that's uh, extremely violent and, uh, and obviously doesn't care. The task force certainly hoped this shooting would result in a lead they could act on. Everything about this shooting fit the sniper profile. The gas station, the proximity to I-95, the victim getting shot in the back, the sound of the rifle shot, 
and the fact that no one saw a shooter. But investigators with the task force were encouraged when they learned that witnesses there did see something. A white Chevy Astro van with ladder racks was seen in the area. It wasn't the same description as the white box truck leaving the scene of the Leisure World shooting on October 3rd, but it was close enough for investigators. An eyewitness at the Manassas shooting also said that he had seen a white van nearby, so the Chevy Astro van lead was one that the task force went with. Police swarmed I-95. They had a huge presence 50 miles north of Massaponics at the Mixing Bowl in Springfield, Virginia. That's the interchange of I-95, I-495, and I-395, where close to a half million motorists travel daily. Police closed all lanes of the Mixing Bowl but one. They looked into every vehicle passing through that interchange. Hundreds of white vans were getting pulled over. That included those traveling along Route 1, not just the interstates. The law enforcement response was massive. There were helicopters, dogs, metal detectors, and police snipers. More bullet fragments were collected, but in the end, the task force was no closer to catching the sniper. The late David Bloom, a reporter for NBC News, gave a detailed report about how the shooters started taking more time in between shootings and started committing them in areas where they could make quick getaways. The killings began with a spasm of violence, six fatal shootings in less than 30 hours. But the last four sniper attacks, spread out over eight days, appear more methodically planned for a quick getaway. The first Fredericksburg attack last Friday, less than 1,400 feet from Interstate 95. Monday's school shooting, 900 feet from Maryland's Route 50. Wednesday's attack in Manassas, less than 1,000 feet from Interstate 66. And today's shooting, back in Fredericksburg, 1,600 feet, just three-tenths of a mile from I-95. By this time, the sniper spree was 10 days old and 10 people had been shot, eight of them fatally. Media credentials were issued to 1,300 media members from around the world. President Bush was speaking about the D.C. sniper shootings during his media briefings. Well, first of all, it is a form of terrorism, but in terms of the terrorism that we think of, we have no evidence one way or the other, obviously. But anytime anybody is randomly shooting, randomly killing, randomly taking life, it's a, it's a, it's cold-blooded murder, and it's, a, you know, it's a sick mind. It's obviously loves terrorizing society. That night, the task force's day shift was heading home. The JOC in Rockville was up and running, and now everything was organized. The call center also was being managed better. It was a more free-flowing operation. Those on the night shift came in and got briefed. Just before 7.30 p.m., Ted and Linda Franklin drove their 1991 Red Mercury Capri into the lower-level parking lot of the Home Depot store in the Seven Corners Shopping Center near Falls Church, a small city in Fairfax County. The couple had been married for eight years. Linda was a 47-year-old analyst for the FBI. She had recently undergone a double mastectomy for breast cancer and was still undergoing physical therapy. Her two children from a previous marriage were now adults and one of them, Katrina, was pregnant. She was about to make Linda a grandmother. Linda had taught at military schools in Japan, Belgium, and Guatemala. 
It was while she was living in Japan that she met Ted, a Marine. Linda had been working at the FBI since 1998. She was an intelligence operations specialist in the National Infrastructure Protection Center, the agency guarded against threats to utilities, banks, and public safety. Linda and Ted were shopping for items to put in their new home. It was after 9 p.m. when they checked out and headed toward the car. It was dark outside, but the garage was illuminated. One of the shelves they bought was too long for the trunk, so Linda tried to push the shelf through the passenger side front door with the back seat down. Ted asked whether he could give it a try, and they switched places. Ted was wrestling with the large shelf when he heard a booming sound. He also felt something splash against his face. When he turned around, he saw Linda sprawled on the pavement. One third of her face was missing. Ted called 911 from his cell phone. I'll mention here that the recording of that 911 call was the most harrowing 911 recording I've ever heard, and I've listened to hundreds of them. Even if I had access to the recording of the entire call, I wouldn't play it here. It's too disturbing. The first police officer arrived at the Home Depot and called into dispatch, describing the scene. Here is a portion of that radio call. You can hear Ted Franklin sobbing in the background. I have nothing on the lookout. Uh, not being a medical personnel, I'm pretty certain there's a 1061. I can only see one shot to this victim. By now, the sniper shootings were on the front of everyone's mind, especially police officers and dispatchers. 420 Charlie, do you think this is sniper related? Car 40 Charlie, I would say 10 Fairfax County Police Chief J. Thomas Manger had just arrived home from work that day. He stayed in his uniform for a while because he wanted to spend time with his nine-month-old son. He headed upstairs to change clothes when his pager went off. The text on the pager stated that there was a shooting at the Home Depot in Seven Corners, possible sniper-related. He said to his wife, we got one in Fairfax. She knew exactly what he meant. He kissed her and headed out the door. Fairfax County is the largest jurisdiction in Virginia. In 2002, it had more than one million residents. Manger made it to the scene quickly. I was there probably less than 10 minutes after I got that page. And uh, I remember you know, just getting there and uh, I remember seeing uh, outside, and I've been to that, by the way, I've been to that Home Depot many times, so I was very familiar with that area. And I noted that the parking lot, the undercover parking lot, was surrounded with uh, yellow crime scene tape. And so I got there, parked my car, jumped out, and um, found the uh, uh, sergeant that was on the scene and started talking to him about what happened. By the time the chief arrived, and as he mentioned, he got there fast, the first reporters were already at the scene. One of those was Dave Statter of WUSA Channel 9. He got a call from one of the station's cameramen, who was listening to scanner chatter all the way near College Park, Maryland, and a call came over his radio that there had just been a shooting in Fairfax. I came in from one side where there were no police, so I pulled up 
not realizing it, that I'm right by Linda Franklin's body. I look over, the first thing I see is a shopping cart full of stuff that apparently Franklin and her husband had bought at Home Depot. And then I looked down from the shopping cart and there was a body. And there was a yellow cloth or piece of a blanket or sheet or something over, over her head where she had been shot. Ted Franklin was being cared for inside an ambulance by the time Statter and Manger arrived. The Franklin shopping cart was still by the car, and the shelf was still sticking out the window. Statter had no doubt that this was the work of the DC sniper. The dragnet was out in full force, just like in Spotsylvania County a few days earlier. Checkpoints were established on the bridges over the Potomac River. The checkpoints stretched into Maryland. It seemed this crime scene was different from the others in one very significant way. There was an eyewitness, and he said that he had seen the whole thing. Manger would tell the media the next day that he was sure the tipster's information would lead to an arrest. There was some additional information uh, that we were able to uh, get from, from last night's case, and I, and I, I am confident that ultimately um, that information is going to uh, lead us to an arrest in this case. A senior FBI agent at the shooting scene wound up interviewing the witness at length. The witness's name was Matthew Dowdy. He said to investigators that he was outside the store with his shopping cart and saw someone emerge from a vehicle, and he was specific about the vehicle. He said it was a cream-colored Chevy Astro van with a silver ladder rack, and a taillight was out. Dowdy even described the shooter. And he said, I saw what he described as a Middle Eastern man came out with a rifle and he saw the man shoot. Dowdy went on to say that the shooter had a mustache and wore a denim jacket. He described his weapon as a rifle that resembled an AK-47. It seemed strange that the shooter was so out in the open and that only one person appeared to have seen him. But police were all in on that lead. The description of the white van convinced them to pursue it. Even the most veteran and senior members of the task force believed that the lead was legitimate. The legwork began the next day on verifying the lead. One of the first moves was to review the security camera footage from inside the store. This was a busy store and there were lots of people in the parking lot. But once um, people had realized that someone had been shot, you know, you saw folks um, rushing, you know, it back into the store for, for cover. At that point, there was, you could see on the camera that, that the main entrance of the store, that there was certainly a lot of commotion. The task force had hoped the Dowdy information would lead to a break in the case. The public hoped for that too. And the media kept pestering the task force. The task force spokeswoman explained to the press that the distance and darkness made forming a composite very difficult. She told them that no defined description had been made yet. The media kept pressure on about that composite, and she kept telling them to be patient. As it turned out, the security camera footage obliterated Dowdy's credibility. It showed that he was inside the Home Depot at 9.21 p.m., while bystanders were running around in a panic. He had no view of what was going on outside, so there was no way he could have seen the shooter. Matthew Dowdy made up the entire story. Police now believe that their best witness from Monday night shooting was a phony witness, whom one law enforcement source described, and I'm quoting here, as a fat ex-con with the nickname Slim who just lied 
to get his 15 minutes of fame. Dowdy had a history of lying, and he had a long criminal background. Cooking up that story about seeing the sniper wouldn't even be his worst transgression. A few years later, he would be charged in the rape and fatal stabbing of a woman inside a motel in Falls Church. He would be sentenced to life in prison for that crime. There was a fallout after the Dowdy lie, and it wasn't just Dowdy who took the brunt of it. Manger was criticized harshly. So was Charles Moose. Both were ridiculed in a well-known New York City tabloid. To this day, Manger has no regrets about how he handled that situation. If there was any chance that this was good information, uh, we certainly wanted to put the inf that information out to get the public's help, to get certainly to get all the uh, officers that were responding to get their assistance as well. Manger explained it this way. If the tip was a fugazi or simply wrong, then it probably will result in some embarrassment and criticism. In this case, that definitely happened, and it happened to him. Conversely, if the tip is real and isn't made public, then it becomes a potentially life-threatening mistake, especially when there are two people with a rifle randomly killing people. You kick over every rock you can if it means helping your chances of catching them. If we had held that and not put that out um, to the public, I think it had been irresponsible, frankly. But amazingly, federal and local authorities from Baltimore to Richmond still remain stuck on one particular tip that appeared to be bogging down the investigation. It was the tip about the sniper's alleged getaway vehicle. Whether it was a box truck or a van, or whether it was white or off-white, the task force kept telling the media, who kept telling viewers, that the shooter or shooters were riding around in a type of vehicle that people on the road see every day. Police here have made a point from the outset of saying that they're searching for a killer or killers. Tonight they said it was both proper and appropriate for the public to be on the lookout for that white van, a van with reportedly two people inside. Even as a couple media members challenged that narrative, and as other law enforcement leaders were questioning at behind the scenes, the task force wouldn't budge. And days later, after another shooting and a botched sting operation outside Richmond, the task force still wouldn't change the narrative. Something big was going to have to break. Coming up on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. My husband has been shot in front of the Ponderosa. We heard a man over there groaning like he had been hit, and then we just saw him laying down. Call me God. Do not release the cut. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law & Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. You may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law & Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts.